Hello, and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps, talking to you from sunny Austin, Texas. I have with me this morning, Ryan Hemmer. Hey, Ryan. Yo, and it Robin. is below zero in Minneapolis. Oh, fun. And Robin Beret? Hey, it's not below zero in Toronto in Fahrenheit degrees, but it is sunny, which never happens here in the winter. So, is Toronto's climate uh, one where when it's sunny, it's colder? In the yes. Winter? Yeah, it's that thing. That's yeah, nice. definitely. So, the winter tends to be like disappointingly warm and just endlessly gray. Gotcha. But unlike somewhere like Vancouver or Seattle, the crocuses aren't up in January. So it's just like, it's not nice. Uh, yeah, I spent my first summer, after growing up in California, my first summer in Chicago, I spent it being uh, tricked repeatedly by sunny days in the winter, thinking, oh, it must be somewhat warmer uh, and being wrong every time. But, you know, you can't fool me more than eight or nine times in a row. And so eventually I figured it out. This week, uh, we're going to talk, we're going to spend this week talking about another Lonergan essay, this time uh, an essay called Mission and Spirit, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, in third collection. Uh, Is that right? It is in third collection. Okay. Um, We're going to talk about the first sort of half of it, first three sections today, and then we'll come around next week. Uh, Hopefully, Brian Bajek will be with us. He couldn't couldn't be with us this week, but uh, hopefully he'll. He'll join us next week to, to wrap up the, the back half. Um, quick reminder, and I'll, I'll remind you again at the end of the show, but a quick reminder that we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash systematically. We have three patrons now, three of them. So thank you to them. They know who they are. Uh, we look forward to uh, hopefully having a, a couple more folks help us along. And, and um, <clears throat> by, by the time you're hearing this, hopefully I'll have... <laughs> actually worked out what special content and such things our patrons will get uh, as of recording. I still have procrastinated on that. But we appreciate your support. and We want you to know that. Um, and also, uh, Treasures Old and New remains on hiatus until we get some people uh, submitting treasures. So please send us an email, slide into our DMs. Uh, let us know what old and new books people ought to be reading. Include a little paragraph about it. And uh, we might just read it on the show. Okay, so before we get to Mission and Spirit, uh, I last night had one of a, 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 a species of dream that I have in a recurring fashion. Now, lots of people in academia I know um, have dreams that are about like not being prepared for class or school or that kind of thing. I have dreams pretty regularly where I'm not prepared or a, perfor- a performance of some kind where I'm like going to go on stage with some band I like and play guitar. Now I don't play the guitar, but even if I did inevitably I go on stage and we've not rehearsed and I don't know the song and I'm expected to just like fake it for three and a half minutes. Um, occasionally I'll have dreams that I'm going on stage in a play. Uh, but in any case, these are, these are the anxiety dreams I have for some reason. Uh, and so I was curious if you guys have, recurring dreams uh, of any note or uh, I don't know repute I mean mine's mine are just the boring ones about that that you've sort of already indicated about the the uh the the exam usually it's math because you know you can't you can't BS your way through a math exam hey you can't BS um, your yeah I, I guess you can <laughs> I, I guess you can't BS your way through a theology class right we've all seen it we've all well, definitely we've all read those uh, books yeah. Well, you know, any, any, anytime you're able to like draw on previous knowledge and integrate it in a new way, you, you at least have a fighting chance of convincing somebody, you know, what you're talking about. But so in the so, movie, and, the best. So, feet. Uh, <laughs> so that's not how math works. Cause that's like precisely how math works. Well, see, all the more reason that I have every right to feel anxious about the math exam, because apparently I don't even know how math works. Please um, write in at systematicallypodcast at gmail.com <laughs> if you know how math works. Uh, <laughs> drop us a DM on Twitter, at systematicpod, just to, in case you want to... Now, I know, you know, in, in certain, certain high-level forms of math, there may be um, a, a myriad of ways of approaching 
uh, a correct solution. And that's where we start using overhyped language like elegance to describe equations. But like, I was never in that math class. No, uh, me neither. When, when math I was still, I was still numbers, doing the like... kind of math where the answer was right or wrong. <laughs> uh, and if you didn't know the algorithm, it was wrong. Um, so that's, that's always the test I'm taking in the dream. Now, who the teacher is, is quite variable. It could be a math teacher, but usually it's not. Uh, and in <laughs> fact, usually it's not even a high school teacher. It's some professor I had in college. Like often it's like a Hebrew professor that's for some reason teaching my high school math class that uh, I haven't Ad, been to all semester. Ad, administering Algebra 3 or whatever. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Uh, and I have them so often that now I have a kind of awareness or at least a suspicion in the dream that it's a dream. Um, but the utter sort of banality of the scenery doesn't like give you a lot of tips that something's gone awry, like gravity still works in the same way. Right. Uh, but, you know, despite those suspicions, I, they, they don't seem to prevent me from being racked with anxiety in the, in the actual moment. So. I know a lot of people like an elegant equation, uh, and I don't mean to share too much about myself, but I like kind of a trashy, voluptuous equation. <laughs> uh, something about that gets my engine going. All those curves, you know. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. And, and the areas under them. <laughs> <laughs> Robin, do you have any recurring dreams? I have all sorts of recurring dreams. Um, I don't get any, like anxiety recurring dreams. So I think, I think only once in my life have I had the dream of like taking an exam and I hadn't like, I forgot that I had registered for the class and hadn't been all semester or something. And I think it ended up being fine. Um, I have a lot of recurring like kind of adventure dreams with like different companions and stuff. So uh, like, um, are are you in a a police box that's bigger on the inside in these dreams? <laughs> I'm not. No, I'm never in a police box. My companions are always like much more attractive than the doctor. So, uh... although wow. this last this last doctor, not bad. Um, <laughs> uh, Jody. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Would would go on an adventure with. Agreed. <laughs> but. Uh, Anyways, um, and I think part of it is because, like, when I was when we were little, my dad would always tell us things like, you know, when we were driving in the car going to bed, it's like we had to like we had to shut up, but like you know, like going to bed. It's like I was always really bad at going to bed because I it takes me a long time to fall asleep. And he's like, well, you know, the thing is, you don't have to go to sleep. You you can make up stories in your head. And on road trips, it's like, no, you guys all need to shut up. And if you're bored, you make up stories in your head. Uh, so now I've done that all my life, and I like now like like in my dreams I'll get the recurring stories that kind of I've made up except in my dream world they kind of just go off on their own but recently in the last like two months uh for those of you who don't know I am these days great with child um and uh, I've been having a recurring dream that I like I'm in some situation that I have to deliver my own baby (laughs) so um which like should be like an anxiety inducing type dream, but it's not like not it's for Robin. Like, it's just like a really like fun. So I had, um, I have had the same, I've had the dream three times now where I've like been on a walk in the river Valley. Cause especially like if it, you know, going for long walks really helps your labor come if, and stuff like that. If you're overdue. And I'm just like uh, on a walk by myself in the river Valley in the snow and, uh, and have you to go deliver into my own. precipitous labor. Yeah, exactly. Like immediate, like so fast, like, that you know i deliver the baby before the paramedics even get there um and uh you know and like in my dream like planet like well which coat would i like put on the ground and sacrifice you know yeah because like you don't want to get like all that on just anything um (laughs) and uh then i've also had the dream a couple times now of giving birth in our kitchen here wow okay um and uh, just getting yourself ready your psyche is preparing you yeah apparently although in my dreams labor is like painless and Mm -hmm. short so i think maybe not no bearing on reality Mm. Uh, and last night i had a dream where i was involved in like 
Is that some sort of like camp type thing? Kind of English countryside surrounding. And then someone got robbed and then someone found the evidence and it was ended up at my parents' house, which is in Southern Alberta. And they had put like the evidence they had found, which was like a vacuum cleaner and a bunch of pearls into the dryer. Because <laughs> um, they found it in a lake and it's trying to explain like you can't put a vacuum cleaner through the dryer. Anyways, um, and then... I ended up then delivering the baby in my twin brother's childhood bedroom <laughs> where Neil and I happened to be living as well. Everybody thought that you were going to zig and you just, you just zagged again, just yeah. right back to the childbearing. <laughs> right back to the, yeah. So, and it, you know, so it was kind of like, you know, a double recurring like crime adventure dream and then delivered the baby in, yeah, in Adrian's uh, childhood bedroom. Um, my, my most memorable recurring dream uh, particular instance was one of these where I'm going on stage for something I haven't prepared for, except it's a, uh, a high dollar production value um, staging of King Lear. And I'm Lear, but I don't know any of the lines and I've never been to a rehearsal. And Shakespeare, uh, famously easy to improvise. Uh, <laughs> and it, and I, and I, and it's, I'm, it's not going well. And I, I come off stage at one point and I, I come nose to nose with the director who it turns out is Orson Welles. And he's just scowling at me with that jowly Orson Welles face. Uh, and I felt deep shame. And then I woke up. <laughs> yeah. All of your recurring dreams seem to involve like shame and fear. Yeah, boy. Uh, if you're a psychoanalyst and you want to analyze my dreams, please uh, send us an email at systematicallypodcast at gmail.com or hit, drop into the DMs. Uh, oh, no, I fear we've lost Ryan Hemmer. Uh, no, just to, just have a bad internet connection. Oh, so I sorry. figured I'd save the bandwidth by turning oh, the we can't see, video we can't see off. We do this via sort of a video conference thing. And so um, I have kind of a, 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 the neighbor from home improvement thing going on, looking over the top of my microphone. But uh, otherwise, I, we can mostly see Ryan and Robin's beautiful faces. I, I have the look of someone who's like desperately trying to finish a dissertation before they have a baby. So it's a, it's a real hot look I've got going. Yes. And yet you evidently have this uh, like real and durable uh, psychic health that uh, I've, I've not encountered in many graduate students. Well, I mean, I... Or, or like <laughs> uh, very, very pregnant mothers. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I mean, give it, give it a week or two for me to like lose my shit on the pregnancy front. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like well, while we're sharing, yes, I, I do have the background inner monologue of like, is this entire dissertation hot garbage? I should probably scrap it and entirely start over again. Um, but, well, that's comforting at least. Yeah, but luckily... So, so the normal one. The normal one. But luckily it, it's not, you know, taking up too much space. And then I just tell myself that, like, I could also just leave this one and then just start a new project over again. And that, you know. Yeah, that's true. And just leave it behind. Exactly. Or, or revise it massively. And turn it into a book. Exactly. So. You know, we'll, we'll all see. We'll see what happens. Um, all right. Let's, well, let's pivot to our, uh, our more serious content for the morning. Uh, continuing our trend of looking at essays that Lonergan wrote. This is an essay called Mission and Spirit. Like I said, it's in third collection. Um, I'll hopefully have tweeted about this essay. So I think it's first published in 1976. Is that right? I think that's what the little um, and, note uh, at the end and third uh, says. It just lets, that just like, gives people an idea of like, when it's from. Yeah, that's right. Um, and third collection, you know, originally was, was edited, uh, and published by, by Fred Crow in, in 85. So that's sort of when we're, when we're talking about here. Um, <clears throat> and it, it starts with a little discussion of, uh, Rahner's relatively famous essay, uh, where he talks about, um, well, the title is Christology within an evolutionary view of the world. Um, and, uh, Lonergan's going to go on to sort of tack some philosophical refinements onto Rahner's uh, account of an evolutionary view of the world. Uh, and then at the end, come back around to talking about both the mission of the, of the word, of the sun, but also the mission of the spirit and, and how they relate. We'll get to that next week because um, there's lots of interesting things to talk about there. And, and frankly, we're hoping Brian can be with us because he, he really loves this essay and has, has thought about it quite a lot. 
Um, but what we thought we would do this week and in the interim is talk about the, the sort of metaphysics that Lonergan sets up beforehand. And part of what's interesting about these metaphysics is that they're, they're an attempt to, to really genuinely do a metaphysics, but do one that is uh, subsequent to the shift from what, when we talked about dimensions of meaning, uh, so you might go back and listen to that episode, um, what we called uh, the pivot from a classical ideal of science to a modern ideal of science. And if you don't remember, you know, that idea there is in the classical ideal of science, you engage in metaphysical analysis by reducing uh, things to their necessary principles or, or reducing them to their causes. Sometimes it's talked about that way. Uh, on the idea that the cosmos is made up of a kind of compound of necessary and contingent elements, right? And so if you're working with the various contingent things, the way to get some scientific control is to reduce the emergence of the contingent to the necessary principles from which they arise. The modern scientific view uh, doesn't make this distinction, um, but rather talks about uh, ver verified possibilities. And so in, in a sense, everything within the cosmos is viewed as contingent. And so one of the categories we're gonna talk about here is um, the place that, something that we've talked about before also when we talked about uh, my essay on statistical heteronormativity, which is the, the place of the statistical in cosmic order. Um, and the relationship between something I, I actually don't, I don't talk that much about in, uh, in that article that I, get, I think I mentioned before, I think Hope is coming out in theological studies in June of this year, um, is finality or teleology. Uh, and so uh, maybe... Um, Ryan, can you, can you give us a kind of quick rundown of Lonergan's three kinds of finality and, and just maybe generally what he means by finality? Yeah, so he's, he's going to talk, uh, when, he, when he's saying the word finality, he's talking about um, different kinds of relationships that obtain between, it, between um, something and its end. Uh, and so it's not it's not just a kind of code word for telos, um, but rather the the specific kind of relationship to the end that obtains. Uh, and so he'll talk about three sort of distinct kinds of finality. And this goes back. This is in in Lonergan's thought. This goes all the way back to um, an essay he wrote in the forties for theological studies uh, called. Um, uh, finality, love, marriage, um, in which he talks about the the kind of finality that marriage has to the social order, and in fact, even to um, God's salvific work within the social order. So he talks about marriage as having a kind of finality to even the mystical body. And so that, that idea of finality then is brought forward in his work into Insight, uh, where he talks about um, world orders in terms of a, a concept he calls emergent probability. Uh, and so that's, this is a kind of uh, approach to metaphysical analysis that's vital for um, understanding kinds of phenomena that uh, are given within a particular mode of emergence. And so he's, he carries this thought from his very, very early work uh, on Aquinas to his uh, stuff on, on uh, finality and marriage, insight. There's a through line uh, about finality that's, that's traceable all the way through that, that work. Now, when we get to the essay we're talking about today, it's in a very sort of condensed form. Uh, in which he'll distinguish three kinds of finality. So he'll talk about uh, absolute finality, where absolute finality is the kind of relationship that a created thing has to its uncreated source and end. So absolute finality is finality in terms of the relation to God. Uh, but then he'll talk about horizontal finality. And this is going to be the, uh, a more familiar kind of finality um, that's, that's sort of 
very familiar from the classical tradition, which is simply the kind of finality that you get in the relationship between some particular thing and its proportionate end. Right? So this is, this is not so dissimilar from what Aristotle will simply call a final cause. Uh, but the, the, the key one and the really interesting one and the one that sort of ties all the different uh, elements together and, and relates to the, the statistical intelligibility of Lonergan's account of metaphysics is what he'll call vertical finality. And vertical finality is about an end that is higher, that's disproportionate in some way to the horizontal or proportionate end that a thing has, but is not itself the absolute end that is the uncreated source and goal of all things at God. And so vertical finality becomes this key idea for doing metaphysical analysis within an evolutionary universe. Because emergence is something that happens within the universe of proportionate being, yet it is something that happens wherein uh, finality beyond what is proportionate to a giving, given thing emerges, becomes possible, and then eventually becomes actual. And so uh, a sort of familiar analogy you can use to kind of get on the inside of this is actually with natural science itself. So, uh, I mean, I'm thinking back to high school. I mean, we sort of learned this in reverse order, where we kind of started with biology and then moved to chemistry and physics. I think that but makes if you're that's a good way to proceed, though, actually, right? It, so, it is, but if you're talking about it in terms of vertical finality, you're going to have kind of a, a, an, an inverted relation between those disciplines. Well, true enough, but, but I think, um, but, but, but I think it, you can... <clears throat> you can use that procedure and it's helpful because it helps you consider the way in which vertical finality, it helps you see the way in which this is an analysis. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. You're, you right. are, you're, you're sort of pulling up, you're, you're, you're identifying and making sense of the various constitutive uh, metaphysical parts of the order that exists, right? So the, the sort of um, hackneyed example you get of teleology, right, is acorn into the oak tree. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, in a way, the, the trickier question then is like, yeah, but what's the relationship between like cells, right? The, the, the sort of, um, the, the, the biological unit of the cell and the oak tree, right? Um, the cells in, in one sense, the, the various cells be, uh, become an oak tree, but you don't, uh, but you don't have, you don't have an oak tree imminent and latent in the cell the way you do in the acorn. Um, and so there's a, uh, but there's still a, a causal relationship. And so uh, anyway, the reason I'm belaboring this is because it, uh, when you do it in that direction, right, when you go from the, the whole to the part and then to the, the sort of um, subordinate constitutive part, it, it highlights the way in which this is an answer to a question. Right, it's a it's a way of a giving account of a of an explanatory gap that the sort of uh, you know freshman seminar in philosophy uh, often elides or overlooks. Does that make sense? So, in the case of acorn and oak, then like oh, for people who are listening, for whom this is a new idea, what like maybe give an example of like what question applies to, for vertical finality and what is horizontal finality vis-a-vis -vis the like cells, acorns, and oaks. Right. So the, um, and, and here I wish I knew more biology, but. Uh, <laughs> I but, can, I can jump in if you're, you know. No, that would be great. But uh, right. The, the, the structure of a cell is meant to, to both, uh, you know, as long as it's telomeres hold out, keep itself, um, keep itself going. And then also to, uh, in, in many cases, replicate, right? Um, but the, uh, and that's, that would be uh, the horizontal finality of the cell, um, whether it's the cells in the leaves or the cells in the bark or whatever. Um, and the horizontal finality of the acorn is all other conditions permitting. Uh, to become 
an oak tree, right? To, to be a mature, uh, respirating and uh, uh, photosynthesizing plant. No, go ahead. So, so could you say that um, vertical finality is a hierarchy of horizontal finalities? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, that's, exp- that's explicitly what it is, is, um, is that you, get a, you have a hierarchy of horizontal finalities where they are, um, they're related causally. And, and in some ways, what I'm saying is the nature of that causality is um, somewhat opaque to the classical worldview. Um, and so you, you sometimes get the sense, you know, I'm, I'm writing about the, the problem of the supernatural, which we'll get to hopefully at the, towards the end of this episode. Um, and there are authors who will write about the proportionate end of creatures, whether they're human or oak trees. Um, and they will take the imminent intelligibility of that proportionate end to treat the hierarchy as though um, it's like, like the cosmos is Russian nesting dolls. Right, that um, that that the the imminent intelligibility of a thing is not really fundamentally um, modified or qualified by its the fact that it's ordered to things beyond itself through vertical finality, whether of the instrumental kind or of the participatory kind, which we maybe talk about in a minute. Um, and so, really, what you have are like ev- everything is everything within a hierarchy is uh, well, things that are inside of things that are inside of things. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's, and you really have like a, a one-way causation relationship. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So I'm sorry, Ryan. I, I, I cut you off, but I wanted to make no, a point No, no, no. That's, that's, that's important. So, so if, you, um, if you wanted to... F- so, th- so that's a good analytic point for talking about um, how, how you would, to, to use a medieval and classical term, how you would sort of run the analysis within a kind of um, order of teaching. But if you were going to follow it the other way, if you were going to sort of take the order of discovery and talk about um, the unfolding of vertical finality within the physical world, um, what, you're, what you're talking about is um, new schemes of recurrence that emerge from prior schemes of occurrence with a certain schedule of probability. Um, that's not a, it's not necessary that they emerge, but sometimes they in fact do. And so from the verified uh, physical laws of the universe, with a certain probability, you will get the emergence of matter. Um, You'll get the emergence of um, basic kinds of forms of matter. Uh, You'll get uh, the emergence of chemical compounds um, that are necessary, right? Um, they're not. They're not just the 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 next automatic stage uh, in in a construction. They're not just the next Russian doll to pop out of the nest, um, but they are themselves a. Um, they have their own horizontal finality that is distinct from the horizontal finality from which they emerge. Uh, so, in when we're talking about vertical finality, we're talking about their relationship that the prior horizontal finality has to the higher horizontal finality. I, I always um, like, I like Joe Sachs's translation of Intelleke, uh when he, he talks about it as being at work, staying itself. So that when we talk about a scheme of recurrence, that's sort of what we have in mind. Um, yeah. Something which is something which is being at work through time, staying itself. So, so you can, you could, um, you could look at this, uh, more negatively right so this is this is what sort of happens in in um certain kinds of pop philosophy of science where you'll get um reductionisms of very kind of various kinds where you might say oh well you know biology the study of life well life is a kind of like fanciful abstraction that we make up really what life is is just the interrelation of certain kinds of chemical p- compounds that recur or don't recur in certain ways. Uh, and so to, to talk about life as kind of a mythology, and really we just need to be about the real business of studying chemistry, uh, to which the, the physical materialist could make a further reduction and say, well, 
chemical compounds are really just um, the coordination of conditions within the physical world with the physical laws of nature as we happen to have them. So if you really want to understand them, you need to get to the real scientific work of physics uh, and, and ignore all of that uh, chem- chemistry uh, mythology to which the mathematician can enter the room and simply say, well, uh, you know, physics is really just math. And so uh, spend, spend your time uh, getting better at mathematics if you really want to understand what is. So what you're saying is vertical finality is a really good excuse for you not to do math. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, or you could interpret it a little bit more charitably because if you're, if you're, that's not my style though, is it? A vertical finality. (laughs) You're you're arguing precisely the opposite of what the reductionist is is arguing. You're saying that mathematics has a horizontal finality that's that's achievable purely within the realm of mathematical reasoning but it has a kind of vertical finality to a higher integration that we call physics and so to physics has um a, a within a certain kind of probability a vertical finality toward a higher integration that we call chemistry and so on and so forth uh, so, so there's a relationship of vertical finality that obtains between all of the different kinds of natural science and the phenomena that they select for their, uh, their inquiries. Mm-hmm. So all, the, all of that is really just an analogy for getting, um, getting at the kind of relation and the kind of finality that vertical finality is. So you're not talking about something that's absolutely uh, supernatural with respect to finality so um there's nothing you don't need like supernatural intervention in this like uh direct way in order to talk about the kind of finality that uh math has to physics or that physics has to chemistry um so it's it's still part of the universe of proportionate being but it's a kind of finality that goes beyond the horizontal finality of any given course of inquiry or any given um, scheme of recurring phenomena. And part of Lonergan's point is um, that you end up actually having to do a different kind of math if you have a modern ideal of science rather than a classical one. Mm-hmm. Um, right? The, the, the classical model of science thought hierarchically um, in the way you suggest. Um, and, and all you need to know uh, to see that really clearly is like, go read some Bonaventure, right? Where the, the sort of Neoplatonic way of working out hierarchy of causes, where cause means the dependence of one thing upon another for its being, uh, you get these uh, great, um, complicated, and uh, well-worked-out hierarchies. Um, but, if you're, but if you're going to have the emergence of the higher from the lower be a part of that cosmic process in a way that isn't just um, the sort of necessary emanation or something, according to something like a logical ideal, uh, you need a different kind of intellectual tool. And the tool you need is uh, statistical analysis. Because you need to be able to speak about the way in which um, the sort of assembly of schemes of recurrence, which is to say the, the assembly of um, sort of internally coherent uh, and um, self, uh, self-conditioning, self-assembling things like chemical compounds or like um, single-celled organisms or something. Uh, <clears throat> the, the, the way in which their assembly brings about the emergence of a higher integrating unity, a higher integrating whole, um, which will subordinate the lower. Uh, and that doesn't happen automatically, it turns out, but it happens according to what Ryan earlier called schedules of probability, which is to say that it happens in the spatiotemporal conjunction of conditions that eventually snowball and accumulate enough that um, certain ways of being become uh, highly probable. This is Lonergan's sort of great line about uh, the relationship between divine providence, uh, cosmic process, and the emergence of human beings. Uh, is like 
basically the reason the universe is really big and really old is because God had it designed to make sure that human beings would emerge from it. Uh, and so the emergence of, of human beings might be a, a, a wildly, just if you sort of reduce everything to zero, uh, a wildly improbable event. Um, but if there's enough space and enough time, even really improbable things occur. Um, and if you have a, a, a cosmos where the order is such that probabilities can accumulate, um, that which at zero is highly improbable becomes increasingly probable through time and space. Um, and this, I think, is, is Lonergan's way of, of uh, very gently critiquing Rahner's essay. You know, he says at the beginning that uh, Rahner prudently omitted from his account the long series of discontinuities reaching from subatomic particles to human being. And part of what Lonergan is trying to say is, um, at some point you have to take account of the discontinuity, um, that there isn't this kind of automatic logical unfolding. Um, and in order to take stock of that and to give some account of that discontinuity in a modern way, you have to have a probabilistic account of how higher integrations um, with their horizontal finality emerge uh, through vertical finality, right? Relationship to an end uh, of lower things, which also have their own horizontal finality. And, and the lower, higher things, by the way, like don't just exist between to go back to like thinking about teaching this like it's not like just like math leads to physics leads to biology whatever but within math you have sets of you have vertical finality as well right so you have you know what you start off with like arithmetic and you eventually get things like limit theory and um math without numbers and all i mean i shouldn't speak about math i don't know much about it um, <laughs> but, but maybe we've all had the experience of being in elementary school and going wait a minute there's letters in this now yeah yeah and just like when people like when they first discovered the atom they thought you know well look like kind of electrons orbit around the nucleus which is not true at all an electrons not like a bead that just <laughs> op- like anyways it, it's not like a like a little circle that actually like takes up a particular amount of space, but it's, there's a whole mathematically um, governed essentially distribution of electronicness, electronness around, you know, it, you know, I know the equation and that's about as far as my understanding of that gets. <laughs> but what I'm saying is like, so even within like you get this horizontal finality and vertical like relationship, not only just in terms of like a, well, like, you know, you start off with like pure math and then you move to physics and then you no no, but like within each of those, um, you also kind of get this this going, and the things that develop at higher levels will in turn kind of affect and change. Like so, vertical finality will also like it's not a one way street. I guess is what I'm trying to say. No, that's right. And so, so which is to say, um, so if you take a if you take a whole like you or me, and um, you have the the regularly recurring data on being conscious, right? So you're you're awake day after day. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, there's regularly recurring uh, schemes like uh, respiration. So whether you're awake or unconscious, uh, if you're alive, you're respirating. But if uh, you do it to yourself or someone else does it to you, if you halt respiration through uh, a well-placed chokehold or um, a poorly placed pretzel in the case of a former president, uh, what happens to consciousness? Adios. Uh, and if you, and in fact, if you get rid of respiration long enough, uh, it's so, so, so both you, you both disrupt the relation, the vertical finality relationship of respiration to sentience. Um, but if, and if you stop respiration long enough, it has a function within the organism that uh, has a horizontal finality. So that if you uh, don't clear that pretzel out, President Bush, uh, you you die, right? The, the 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 movement towards horizontal finality is also disrupted and, and ended. Um, and so yeah, so there's a there's a asymmetrical and also um, a reciprocal relationship of causality between these various levels of analysis within a whole that that sublates them that, that subordinates them. Right. And interestingly enough, like and and kind of transcends like what we think of as the realm. So like, 
social conditions and and psychological conditions um in turn like will affect like your cells mm-hmm. right and then you you change the horizontal finality of those cells like whether it's like disruption of your mitochondrial dna or like shortening of telomeres or whatever um you know that then in turns affects things you know like kind of your larger bodily integration which affects like your mental anyway so it's really quite fascinating that this also allows you to talk about the ways in which say social conditions or diet or whatever affects like what we think of as much lower level right things so you see like you know a much more integrated approach to right and so then systems and bodies and 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 the world in general right and and so then you know um when our, when our son was born my wife is very very smart uh and highly structured and um is is capable of exerting a high level of control over her own life and her uh, her own environment and uh, i i would occasionally have to remind her that our son uh is an animal and animals are governed by uh, statistic schedules of probabilities by by statistical intelligibilities um and so the fact that he was he was not hungry at this time but might be hungry a couple of hours later today di- doesn't disrupt the sort of or or slept this long in his nap today um that that particular instance doesn't necessarily disrupt the schedule of probabilities right that you can have outliers that don't disrupt the norms that are governing and so your kid can be perfectly healthy even if he won't nap today uh now that might be a threat to your health as a parent um <clears throat> but again uh, the, because of the schedule, schedules of probability are what govern the relationship between um, sort of various levels in the hierarchy that constitute a, a whole being. Um, there can be that the kind of flexibility that we see, the the, the um, plasticity between environment, between consciousness, and so on. They probably also govern like how likely your wife is to throw dishes at your head for explaining that to her when she's sleep deprived. Well, I didn't explain it precisely in those terms. I was much more, uh, you know, sensitive, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Give me, a, so, give me a little credit. The, this is all the, the kind of metaphysical analysis mm-hmm. of vertical finality that Lonergan does here in about two and a half pages, which is condensing, you know, two entire chapters of insight uh, uh classic bernie <laughs> uh it's for a purpose you know it's his his issue with Ronner is not just that like oh you didn't like show your work on how vertical finality governs uh various stages of emergences within the natural order he's trying to get to the real question that in Ronner's case is about christology and in lonergan's case is more general insofar as it's a question about how human beings uh, can have a kind of vertical finality that by definition is beyond their horizontal finality, uh, but not just a vertical finality to some like next stage of evolution, but a vertical finality to God, to its supernatural end. Uh, and so, so that's really the question that Lonergan is is shooting toward uh, by doing this metaphysical analysis to get going, is to give us a view of vertical finality and a kind of account of it that he can shift to a theological question and ask, how is it the case or how might it be the case that human beings could have a relationship of vertical finality to the absolutely supernatural? And what I find so, I, so, what I find so remarkable about this uh, particularly how tersely he's able to do this, but um, is that his move here is to say, is, is to, in a kind of incipient, an incipient way, distinguish between uh, supernatural as a, a, a speculative synonym for grace and the theorem of the supernatural, which is a kind of relation that can obtain in any data that uh, are organized by the relation, right? Yes. So um, the relationship of uh, biological systems to the chemical processes on which they depend is supernatural. Um, in the sense of in, in the sense of the theorem of the supernatural, right? That it's an instance of vertical finality. Um, 
<clears throat> now it's not absolutely supernatural, right? It's, it's only relatively supernatural. Um, but the operative here is, is it still a kind of being carried forward, a kind of medieval tech metaphysical technique of natural analogy. Um, that he's giving you this, this formal relation, this analogy of proportion that he's then going to use to talk about the way in which supernatural is more commonly used. Now, he says, you know, these days when people see supernatural, they mean sort of spooky stuff. I always like to say they mean like ghosts and shit. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, the theologically literate reader um, might read supernatural and go, oh, no, 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 that supernatural is a kind of systematician's way of saying grace. Um, this produces a bunch of problems in the 20th century. I mean, when, um, when Henri de Lubac reads Blondel and sees Blondel talking about supernatural, 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 he in every instance seems to think that Blondel means grace. Um, and grace is included in what Blondel means, but really what Blondel means is um, a particular kind of relation, and he has in mind a relation of absolute supernatural um, finality. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I think that's to be able to, in like three pages, set up a, a natural analogy like this uh, in which the theorem of the supernatural is incipient and then be able to pivot to the question of grace is, is really <laughs> quite remarkable uh, and has a lot of applications for like debates that are still raging in Catholic theology and beyond. Um, well, and the, the really interesting thing to me is that um, updating, as he's doing in a sense, the, the account of math and science that he's trying to use as the natural analogy is actually vital for understanding the theological correlate that's being uh, analogized. Because if you're using a purely classical account of vertical finality, where the hierarchy is just about subordination, and you're just sort of, um, you're just sort of like finding the great chain of being um, and describing the different levels within the chain, um, you're, you're not going to actually be able to talk about vertical finality to God in the way that Lonergan wants. Because vertical finality to God is not just a description of the kind of subordination that human beings have to the absolutely supernatural, but it, vertical finality to God in the way that Lonergan wants to talk about is about the participation of human beings uh, in God's own life. So it's, it's, it's about, uh, in biblical terms, becoming partakers of the divine nature. Right, just and as so, uh, just as the the cells in the oak tree. How did the cells in the oak tree participate in the being of the oak tree by like being cells? By doing exactly self? right. But but if you really get the the participatory kind of vertical finality there, that's really what the natural analogy is that Lonergan's trying to bring over into a theological register to talk about the finality of human being to God. Uh, so it's it's not just sort of doubling down on um, hierarchy as subordination, but it's trying to give you an account of of hierarchy as uh, a relationship of participation in ver through vertical finality. So I guess my question with with what Lonergan's doing here is like I mean he's really like this whole project is kind of a posteriori, right? Like you know. Um, starting with kind of the natural sciences and then moving the natural analogy to the supernatural. But I guess why postulate absolute, like why, what, what leads to the conclusion that there is an absolute finality as opposed to just vertical finality? Like, I guess what I'm unclear for Lonergan is like, is he just start like in this essay is like, is he just starting with the assumption that there is the supernatural? And now he's kind of re-explaining in the sense of how, absolute how that absolute would work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The absolutely supernatural. Or like I guess is it is it a proof or is he just starting with like, look, there is an absolutely supernatural, and now that we know these new things about the natural world, we can explain it in a different way. I mean, his the the examples he uses to begin the essay are are um the the ways in which uh, the Hebrews adapted Babylonian mythology in order to um, express a a uh, account of the universe in which Yahweh is its creator, um, right. or the way in which uh, you know uh, 
Aquinas was able to uh, adapt the meaning of Aristotle in order to meet the sort of um, exigence of the theological and philosophical questions of his own time. And right, so, so the the organizing question is, all right, um, given an evolutionary universe, uh, what what kind of um, what kind of tools does it offer for theological analysis, and what kind of um, what kind of of um, adaptations does it need to undergo in order to um, sort of satisfy the imminent criteria of those of, of theological inquiry? So it's right. not it's not a proof, right? So like so in the same way that biblical writers like employed Babylonian cosmology to basically like and reinterpreted Babylonian cosmology to explain revelation. Or like explain the content of revelation, yeah. not the existence of revelation. Right. It's kind of, he's kind of doing the same thing here, right? Like he's explaining the content like of revelation that is that like there's God and stuff, but reinterpreting it in, in relationship to uh, and, refi- and refining, right? Right, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh de- developing, you might say. Um yeah, no, I think that's right. And and you know the the <clears throat> I think uh, Blondell's maybe worth bringing up again here, right? But for Blondell, his account of the supernatural is an account of just of the disproportion of God to um, <clears throat> to all the realms of of in which humans might act, which is to say the the cosmos in all sort of aspect. Um, and, and in Blondell, what in doctrinal terms we would call God's creative action and God's uh, redemptive or saving action are not distinguished. Um, he thematizes them in various ways in various places. Um, but when he says supernatural, he really just means like God's at extra agency, full stop. Um, and, but now uh, when you consider human action, um, precisely because human action uh, is uh, sort of uh, via our, let me simplify it, sort of our spirituality, um, which, which in, again, in sort of a, in theological terms, you could talk about a sort of our um, participation in, in God, right? And the sort of uh, the, our possession of the divine light or whatever you want to talk about it. Um, that there's a, the reason action is the lens to, human action is the lens to use for this whole discussion is because um, the, the relation to a disproportionate ground and end in human action uh, is a question for the human agent in a way it isn't for the oak tree. Um, the, the oak tree participates in God's governance and so God's intention um, and so God's being in related to creation just by being an oak tree. Um, but human beings, uh, we decide things for reasons. Um, and as a result, then, um, the question of how it is we will, in our deciding things for reasons and then acting upon them, uh, how is it that we will participate in the divine life? Um, and it seems to be that uh, we then uh, are in need of some special gift um, that the oak tree doesn't need. Um, but for the philosopher, Blondell's really clear, and Lonergan agrees on this in, natural, in his essay, Natural Desire to See God, um, for the philosopher, this is a paradox. It, it leads to a fundamentally ambiguous conclusion. Um, it's something utterly impractical, in, impracticable for us to make this sort of leap, uh, this vertical finality um, shift. Um, it, it's, it's not imminent in what we are to be able to do it. Um, but the theologian knows that the gift is given. And the gift is given in, within the one cosmic order that is willed by God and God's unitary act of existence and so active willing and knowing creaturely being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Lonergan in Natural Desire to See God says, you know, what is a, a paradox for the philosopher um, can be thought based on the affirmation of faith for the theologian. Um, and so anyway, that's a, a long way of saying, I think basically, yeah, that, that this, the, the idea of using these, um, to give an account of absolute, uh, the absolute supernatural um, really becomes a coherent thing to do when you're, giving, when, you're, when you're doing an analysis of a whole and where the whole is the order of the universe as it is and 
And by faith, we know that the order of the universe includes the gift of God's grace. Right. Uh, which is, oh, go ahead. Well, the interesting thing here for me is like, he's not so much concerned as the app of, with the absolute supernatural, like, like, sorry, that's the wrong way to put it. But he's not like in, you know, like the acorn to oak tree, right? Like in that kind of analogy, he's not concerned specifically with the oak tree and what the oak tree is like, but he's concerned with the relationship of acorn to oak tree. And it seems like when he's talking about like man's vertical finality to God, it's the same thing. He's not concerned per se with like God. Like de- like describing or attributes or whatever, but he's concerned about that relationship between humans and God, which is kind of an interesting. Which for me, like, I mean, I guess like you have all the kind of the grace stuff, but most most natural analogies then focus on like then who or what God is, and that doesn't seem to be his concern here. Right. If, it's if it's an right. it's an analogy be, because the okay so because finality is a relatedness to an end. Um, so it's not just the end in itself, but it's the relatedness to the end. Right. The question of the human being's relatedness to our end, God, because one of the terms is fundamentally transcendent and mysterious, um, the, an answer to that question uh, that will both shed light on the creaturely element, um, but also be cognizant and um, respectful or whatever, of the, the mysterious, the irreducible mystery of the divine being um, is going to have to proceed by analogy. Right. Um, and so you need analogy, not because it's an analogy properly of, of God, but it's an analogy of a relationship in which God is one of the terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so you still have to do analogy, even though you're part of what you're asking about is creaturely. I don't know, Ryan, does that sound right to you? Yeah. So I, I, I think the, I'll just read the, the last couple of paragraphs here, because I, I think we get this whole discussion wrapped up in a nice little bow. Uh, Langan says, uh, vertical finality to God is not merely obscure, but shrouded in mystery. Where, where mystery here, right, is, is being used in the formal theological sense. In this life, we, know, uh, we can know God not as he is in himself, but only by deficient analogy. God himself remains mystery, since potency is known only by its act and relation by its term. It follows that vertical finality to God himself can be known only in the measure that God is known, that it can be revealed only in the measure that God himself has been revealed, that it can be imitated, perhaps hardly in a manner that is unambiguous, since vertical finality is multivalent and obscure, and imitations are not apt. Uh, to make clear uh, which of many possibilities lies in store. Vertical finality enters into evolutionary perspective. It does so in as much as emergence, unfolding, development, maturity, follow the analogy of evolutionary process. Such process is to be understood in accord with emergent probabilities and under divine planning and action. By analogy of that process is meant not some basis for a priori prediction, but only a basis for a posteriori interpretation. Here, as elsewhere, things are known only as so far as they are in act. And so, uh, if you've sat through this entire discussion and thought, uh, why aren't they talking about Jesus or the Holy Spirit? <laughs> or theology at all. <laughs> please tune in next week um, where we will consider the the mediation of uh, God that constitutes a, the, our vertical finality um, concretely insofar as it is an act. We'll talk about the missions of the sun and of the word. Uh, and again, hopefully sun, Brian, sun and spirit, excuse me, sun and spirit. Thank you. Um, all right. But I think that's going to have to do it for us today. Um, so thank you for listening. Uh, if you have questions or comments or things you want to follow up on with us, you can tweet the show at Systematic Pod, or you can send us a, a, a an angry email at systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or if you want to contribute to Treasures Old and New, if you're missing that segment terribly now, uh, you can either drop it in our DMs on Twitter or email us those as well. Um, 
And again, we have a Patreon. So if you want to help make our show uh, financially sustainable for us, we're, we're about a third of the way towards covering our monthly costs. Um, it's patreon.com slash systematically. Um, thanks to Brian. Uh, we miss him. It's been sad he hasn't been able to be here the last couple of weeks, but he still uh, plugs away faithfully putting the music at the front and the back end and editing the show and putting together show notes and posting the show. So thank you, Brian, for all your production work. Um, if you get a chance, could you go to Apple Podcasts and comment, rate, review the show? Uh, it helps people find it. We'd really appreciate that. Uh, as always, the music is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Um, thanks, Robin. Thanks, Ryan. And this week, be responsible. Be responsible.